Hello. Welcome to Living with Steam, a unique podcast featuring the authentic sounds of railroading in Buffalo and Western New York. The recordings you are about to hear were made between 1948 and 1955 by John Prophet. I'm Aaron Heverin. Before we begin, I feel it's necessary to tell a bit of a backstory so that a deeper appreciation of John Prophet's recordings can be had. I'll spend more time in later episodes introducing John in more detail and how he and other railroad enthusiasts were able to preserve a huge part of Buffalo's industrial history that has long since disappeared. More importantly, I want this podcast to show my deepest appreciation and gratitude for what John Prophet did in the late 40s and early 50s, even if, in his own words, he never thought his recordings would amount to anything since he made them for his own enjoyment, and nothing could be further from the truth. John's railroad recordings are spectacular. I hope you enjoy them, and the historical tales that go with them. In 1996, I was working on producing a documentary about the city of Buffalo's railroad history. When I began the project in 1992, I had no idea how huge this project was going to be. It never occurred to me that other important tales from Buffalo's historical past were needed to help bring the story of the railroad industry in Buffalo to life. Not seeing the big picture made working on the project somewhat daunting. Honestly, I couldn't focus on one history without mentioning another first. And this documentary was becoming a tremendous undertaking, and I often felt that I was in way over my head. Prior to even putting a single word on paper for a script, the only exposure I ever had to a train was in the form of a model railroad, or the tracks that ran through my North Buffalo neighborhood where I was growing up. It wasn't until I started looking at topographical maps of Buffalo that I realized that the railroad tracks shaped the neighborhood I lived in. In fact, I found that the presence of a railroad track shaped many neighborhoods and small towns for that matter. But when I was a kid, those railroad tracks behind the houses one street over and the trains that rumbled through and shook the windows of my house were the extent of the knowledge I had about a train. So, very little. But in 1992, when I began serious work on this documentary, I started looking at maps, reading books, and interviewing former employees of the railroads that had a major presence in Buffalo. And I found out that Buffalo prospered not only due to the presence of the railroads, but because of the many other industries that fed into its existence. And suddenly this wasn't a documentary only about the choo-choo train, as some folks who were assisting me with the project were fond of calling it. This was becoming a documentary about many histories, from Buffalo's founding as a village, to the War of 1812, to the Erie Canal, and finally to the railroad. I was discovering very important aspects of Buffalo's industrial history that helped evolve the city into what became known as the Queen City of the Lakes. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As I said, it was 1996, and I had amassed an enormous collection of photographs, old movies, maps, drawings, and lithographs, and personal recollections and stories for what I hoped would be a solid three-part documentary on a very important part of Buffalo's industrial history. I had everything needed to make a visually stunning documentary. Oddly enough, what I didn't have were sounds. No authentic sounds whatsoever. The old movies I had were all silent 8mm or 16mm films, and there's only so many hours of ambient sounds of crickets and birds in an open field that you can use. Sure, I had a lot of interviews, but even people talking need to be supplemented with sounds. 
I mean, this was a documentary about trains, and I didn't have a single sound of a train from the 1990s and back. I hadn't given a thought to music for the documentary. I figured that if I could have some authentic sounds of what the railroads were like back when they were a part of everyday lives, I'd play the kazoo for the music if I needed to, and I'd be happy with it. I think prominent documentarians would tell you that if you're going to show a picture of a steam engine blasting through an open field, you should probably have the sound of a steam engine in the background. Throw in some music to fill the mood, and you've got, what, a good 10 to 15 seconds of video? The kazoo, of course, would make the scene memorable. So, no sounds. I had video and sound recordings of modern diesel engines as they pulled mile-long trains down the mainline railroad tracks in Buffalo and surrounding towns, but the sound a diesel engine makes is nothing at all like those made by a colossal steam engine. Honestly, can you really compare this to this? No comparison, right? Before I really get too far ahead of myself, let me back up a bit and explain what all of this has to do with the story. One of the biggest contributors of photographs and movies to my project was a man by the name of John Prophet. I'll talk more about John and how I met him a little later, but let me just say now that John wasn't just another guy whom I interviewed for information about a topic, and that was it. John's knowledge of the railroad industry and the history of Buffalo was so amazing that he and I clicked right away. He was just a great person to talk to about anything, and we became very good friends. Now, John had sounds. Lots and lots of sounds. Only, John wasn't going to let me use them. Little did I know that a scant few of John's sound recordings of steam trains had made it out of his house and onto a vinyl record or two and even a CD for the Pennsylvania Railroad Historical Society. Out of everything in his mind-boggling collection of railroad photographs, films, and recordings, the only thing that was off-limits were his steam train recordings that he made from 1948 to 1955. He had dozens of reel-to-reel -reel tapes he'd gladly let me use, but those contained mostly early diesel engines and the occasional steam engine pulling a special excursion train. Now don't get me wrong, I was very grateful to him for giving me access to these later recordings, but it's not what I really wanted. I needed those steam train recordings, but he was always pretty much against letting me use them. Every time I'd bring up the subject, he would always look at me and very emphatically say, no, I can't let those leave my house. Out of deep respect for John, I never pushed the subject. I was bitterly disappointed, and I wasn't about to piss him off by bugging him about it, so I had no choice but to let the matter drop. Now, I want to point out that I'm an audio engineer by trade, and I thought I knew a little bit about making sound recordings and what went into doing so. However, what I didn't know was that prior to there being open reel-to-reel quarter-inch magnetic tape, in the early to mid-1940s, if people wanted to make their own recordings, they could purchase a home record cutter. With this machine, you could make a 78 RPM record on a blank acetate disc. But most people didn't have home record cutters, 
since they were very expensive and used primarily by radio stations or production studios. In home use, a record cutter was very impractical. You certainly couldn't bring it out to a field and record a passing train with it, and it only recorded about three minutes worth of audio. But after the record cutter, if people wanted to make their own home recordings, one could purchase a wire recorder. And I had absolutely no idea that such a device existed. I never heard of it. Never heard a recording made on one. The internet was in its bare infancy back in those days, so I couldn't exactly ask Google to tell me what a wire recorder was. So you can just imagine my shock when I discovered that such a thing existed, especially back in the period of time we're talking about. I also didn't know that John had one. Unbeknownst to me at the time I began my project, John Prophet made hundreds of recordings of railroads in and around the Buffalo area using a portable Webster Chicago wire recorder that he had purchased in 1948. However, by 1996, I was fully aware of the incredible archive he had sitting in his house. Only, it was completely off-limits. One of the last times I asked him about his recordings, he told me that several other people had approached him over the years to inquire about using his recordings for various projects. And while he gave in to those projects, he wasn't truly happy in doing so, and I could never figure out why. Initially, I thought that perhaps my friend John was being a tad stingy with his archives. A hoarder, you know? Collect the stuff but never let it leave your house for any reason whatsoever. Or you've got dozens of something but you won't consider selling it. That kind of thing. It finally came out after several conversations about his recordings that the wire recorder was broken and it wasn't playing back a wire correctly. John told me that he had to watch over the unit every time it operated because if he didn't, the spool of wire would snarl up and be impossible to untangle, and he wasn't about to let that happen to his wires again. Now honestly, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I asked him, if he ever thought about getting the machine repaired. And he said there was no one around who could do it, and it was too heavy to lug around. Now, ever since I was a kid, I had repaired and restored old radios and stereo equipment. I'm pretty sure I had the parts and resources available to fix a piece of audio gear from the mid-1940s. So I looked him in the eye and I said, John, I bet I could fix that thing for you. This was one of the only moments that John Prophet stared me down. He knew some of the things I dabbled in, like amateur radio, but he didn't know that I knew my way around a piece of old audio equipment that used vacuum tubes. Sensing that I had perhaps sparked his interest, I said, look, why don't you bring it by and let me take a look at it? Or I'll stop by your house and pick it up. Explain to me what's going on with the thing and let me see if I can fix it. He was still staring me down, unsure of what to say. I could tell he was interested, but I'm sure he had been told dozens of times by other people who wanted to use his recordings that they could fix it. You couldn't just run out to Best Buy and purchase another Webster Chicago wire recorder or let the Geek Squad repair it for you. We're talking about a piece of equipment from 1948, not 2020. John started to explain to me what he thought was wrong with the machine. I said, well, that sounds mechanical, not electrical. And he replied, the amplifier also has a very bad hum to it. I'm afraid it might catch fire. And you know what will happen if the moving parts don't work correctly. 
miles and miles of tiny wire will spew out into a tangle that's impossible to fix. The recordings will be ruined. I laughed slightly to myself. The machine isn't going to catch fire, John. Let's take a gamble. Let me take a look at the wire recorder because I'm pretty confident I can get it working to your satisfaction. Tell you what, why don't you bring it over with a wire you really don't care too much about? Leave it with me for a week or two and let me see what I can do with it. If I can't fix it, then the matter is dropped. But again, I'm pretty sure I can fix the wire recorder based on my experience with equipment that old. If I can get it working, what do you say to archiving all of the wires to a safer format like cassette? You have a cassette player at home, don't you? You haven't heard the wires in years. If we put the recordings on cassette, we can play them back in a much safer way. That seemed to seal the deal. To make a long story short, he agreed. I knew he was still a little hesitant, but the thought of being able to hear his recordings again after so long was just something he couldn't refuse. John said he would bring the recorder over in a few days. It would take him that long to find it and a wire he didn't care too much about. So now we return to 1996. I had tinkered with the Webster Chicago Model 288-1 for a few days. I replaced many of the components in the amplifier that were obviously bad, and I replaced a spring that had broken in two. After careful study, I found that this broken spring was the cause of the mechanical failure that John was so concerned about. Keep in mind that up to this point, I had never heard anything on a wire recorder before. John had showed me how to load a wire onto the machine and how to operate it as he did back in the late 1940s. As usual, when I worked in my shop, I was listening to records on my Victrola as I was putting the wire recorder back together. I know, right? A Victrola. Having to stop every three minutes to change records. But I liked it and was used to this minor annoyance. I had thousands of 78s loaded on cassettes, but working on a piece of gear from 1948 while listening to an audio device from 1916 seemed oddly fitting. With the last screw in place, I powered the wire recorder on and started loading a wire for playback, just as John showed me how to do. The motor was a bit loud, but that shouldn't take away from hearing if the unit itself was working. So with the Victrola going in my living room, I moved the operation switch on the wire recorder to the listen position and held my breath. 49 calling the west end of the depot. Why, good evening, Mr. Dalton. Greetings and salutations and a happy January the 14th, you me boy. And I can see where you didn't fall under any ladders there, the Friday the 13th. By the way, Bill, here is the flat wheel limited. He's got two engines tonight, 10 cars, and he's reported on time. And that's it. Thank you very much, Tommy. Anytime, Bill, anytime.
Once I pulled my jaw up from the floor, I sat there staring at the wire recorder in total disbelief. I was utterly speechless. It worked! I couldn't believe how it sounded. There was an odd metallic sound like millions of tiny droplets of water hitting a tin roof. And there was just a slight hum. But it sounded incredible. I had never heard anything like this before. This wasn't just a sound recording. This was a piece of history that, for all intents and purposes, should never have been captured. Yet, here it was. I quickly grabbed the box that the spool of wire came in and looked at it. In John's handwriting was written, 49A, January 14, 1950. And this was one of his bad recordings? Because of the amount of research I had done up to this point, I had a pretty good idea what the notation on the box meant. The recording was made at New York Central's interlocking tower 49A. These towers controlled the movement of trains from one track to another. Think of an air traffic controller, but for a railroad. This recording sounded like I was hearing one of the tower operators talking to another operator at the terminal itself. I rewound the wire and took the spool off the machine and studied it. To me, it looked like a stainless steel thread about the size of a human hair. I could see now why John was so adamant about not letting the wire recorder out of his sight. One mishap with a wire as it was playing back spelled disaster. If anything went wrong while the wire was rewinding, that's it. The spool of wire would be ruined. Unfortunately, John lost many priceless recordings due to mechanical mishaps with the wire recorder. I'll talk more about the technical details of the wire recorder and how it worked later. But now, it was working. And darn it if it wasn't working as good as new. Or so I thought. Only John could tell me that. I couldn't dial his number fast enough. When he answered his phone, I asked him to hold it up to his ear for a second because I wanted him to hear something. I played a small section of the recording I had listened to after I first rethreaded the wire back onto the machine. There was silence on the other end of the phone after I stopped playback. After a while, John came back and said, Oh my, is that the recording of Tower 49A? That sounded like the voice of Tom Dillon. He was a tower operator for the New York Central and worked out of Tower 49A and Tower 49. He used to announce the oncoming Pennsylvania trains as they were about to enter the Central Terminal. He had a very loud voice. He was also quite the BS artist. Not a lot of guys had respect for him. It suddenly dawned on me that John was rambling on and on about the two minutes of the recording he just heard. It's as if a huge part of his past just came flooding back. As he continued to talk, and I found it impossible to get a word in to interrupt him, I realized that he was describing what he had just heard and everything else on this one wire I had, like he had just made the recording yesterday. His excitement was beyond controllable. When I finally jumped in as he was taking a nanosecond of a breath, I explained what I did to fix the wire recorder and how I had replaced many of the parts in the amplifier to eliminate the hum that was coming from the internal speaker. However, there was still a hum that seemed to have been recorded onto the wire. John said the unit always did that, even when it was new. After a slight pause, I asked if he was pleased and willing to go to the next step. Oh yes, yes, of course. Boy, I can't believe you got it working. 
That's very interesting how you were able to fix the playback head on the thing. That head failing to go up and down was the reason I lost so many of my recordings. But you say it's working? I assured him that it was. The machine, to me, was working just fine. Let me point out that what I'm conveying here about our conversation is a majorly abridged version. John loved to talk. And once he got on a subject, he just went on and on without hardly taking a minute to catch his breath. When he was passionate about a subject, you just had to let him go. I would just smile, shake my head in agreement, and of course, for the most part, I sounded like an idiot going, yeah, um, but, oh right, uh, when did, um... Once I finally was able to tell him that the unit seemed to be playing back this one spool of wire just fine, he asked if he could bring over the rest of the wires the following day. Let's just say I cleared my calendar for several weeks. Let's finish this part of the story by saying that John Prophet brought over two large suitcases and four cardboard boxes. Inside were his complete collection of wire recordings that he had made between 1948 and 1955. And now it was time to begin the long and tedious process of safely archiving the wires and documenting each and every recording. Luckily, John kept notes of each recording at the time he was making them. However, these notes were nothing more than simple jottings of info that made sense to him alone. He and I would have to sit down and review each and every recording in order for me to fully understand what I was hearing. This endeavor turned out to be another project in itself. But we'll save that part of the story for later. But now, let's take a listen to that recording of Tower 49A from January 14, 1950. The first wire recording I heard back in 1996. One technical detail I want to point out is that no correction of the original recording has been done. You are hearing it exactly as it came off the Webster Chicago 288-1 wire recorder. The sequence of events is not exactly in real time, but it's relatively close. Remember, in 1950, there was a lot more train activity on this busy main line of the New York Central than there is today. 49A was a signal tower that was controlled by the New York Central Railroad, and it served as a junction between the Central and the Pennsylvania Railroad. It was located right on the Central's main line, about one mile west of Buffalo Central Terminal. Since John was well known among the New York Central's tower operators, he was able to get unlimited access to many of them in the Buffalo area in order to make his recordings. He's on the second floor of 49A, overlooking the many tracks of the New York Central main line. He's holding a microphone out a window. The trains will pass within a few feet of his vantage point. The sequence begins with Tom Dillon, the tower operator, calling Central Terminal and announcing Pennsylvania Train 571, a passenger train pulled by two K4 engines, numbers 3872 and 7280. The train is the Pennsylvania's Buffalo Day Express and was the railroad's Philadelphia to Washington to Buffalo Daily Express train. The engines are pulling 10 cars and the lead engine will whistle for the tower. What's funny about this recording is that it captures just how much of a goofball Tom Dillon was. He announces the train as the Flat Wheel Limited, and John told me that every time he called the terminal for any reason, Tom always threw in some little yarn because he thought he was hysterical. A lot of the guys didn't respect him, and it shows when you hear the raspberries that somebody gave over the tower's intercom speaker. Since the Pennsylvania didn't have its own station in Buffalo, 
it had to use Central Terminal as its passenger depot. This in itself isn't much of a problem, but the issue is that Pennsylvania trains coming from their line would pull out onto the New York Central's main line right at Tower 49A. They would cross over several tracks and switches before they were moved onto a siding that would line the train up for the terminal. This is part of the operation that Tower 49A would control. And while the engines navigated these switches, the driving wheels would sometimes slip. Once the train was lined up, the engine would back the train down the tracks and into Central Terminal. For this recording, if you listen carefully, someone on the train will yell hello to Tom Dillon in the tower as the train passes by. And of course, Tom will yell back. Following train 571, a single Pennsylvania K4 will pull forward off their tracks and cross over several of the Central's tracks in a movement exactly like the one train 571 did earlier. It will pause and wait for a signal from the tower before it starts backing down a spur that will eventually take the engine to the Pensy's engine facilities in Ebenezer, New York. The engine is doing a tremendous amount of clanking, and it's these additional sounds that John Prophet loved to capture, so much so that he would indicate the sounds in his notes. After the K-4 backs down the tracks, a Toronto, Hamilton, and Buffalo J-1 Hudson, number 5370, shows up. It's pulling train 380, bound for Toronto. This train was the Toronto Buffalo Daily Express. And waiting patiently for the THB train to pass, train 574, the Pennsylvania's Dominion Express, will pull away from the vicinity of Tower 49A with a lot of hissing of steam. The train is being pulled by two Pennsylvania K4 engines, numbers 3672 and 8009. Once the K4 goes by, a New York Central J1 Hudson, number 5307, will pull train 246 bound for Niagara Falls. This was a daily train that went from Buffalo Central Terminal to Suspension Bridge in the falls. 49A calling the west end of the depot. Why, good evening, Mr. Dalton. Greetings and salutations and a happy January the 14th, you me boy. And I can see why you didn't fall under any ladders there the Friday the 13th. By the way, Bill, here is the Flatway Limited. He's got two engines tonight, 10 cars, and he's reported on time. And that's it. Thank you very much, Tommy. Anytime, Bill, anytime. We'd have to buy a couple of quarts big enough for a horse for them fellas. Thank <laughs> you. 
You've been listening to Living with Steam, a podcast featuring the authentic sounds of railroading in Buffalo and Western New York. The program was written and produced by me, Aaron Heverin, and all of the original sound recordings featured on the program were recorded in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. Make sure to visit the Facebook page for Living with Steam, where you can view images and other information associated with each recording. Just head over to Facebook and search for Living with Steam. In the next episode, we'll hear more recordings that John Prophet made from New York Central's Tower 49A, this time from February 3rd, 1950. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.